From the PA Foundation, I'm James Millward, and this is Vital Minds, a podcast connecting the most vital issues in clinical care with the top minds facing them every day. Here at Vital Minds, we have talked a great deal about opioids, especially with regard to addiction and the treatment of opioid use disorder. Today, we're going to look at how our prescribing practices may be contributing to the ongoing opioid crisis and what we as providers can do to address this. While prescribing rates have been decreasing, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, in 2018, there were almost 52 opioid prescriptions written on average for every 100 people in the United States. To further illustrate the overprescribing, the CDC found that in 11% of U.S. counties, there were enough prescriptions written that each resident could receive one. Here to discuss these trends and how PAs can support safe prescribing practices is Laura Caters, PAC, from the University of Washington. Laura's experienced in pain management both in the outpatient and inpatient setting and is currently dealing in acute and chronic pain management. Laura, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, James. I'm very happy to be here and really appreciate this invitation. It's very near and dear to me, so I look forward to our discussion. Laura, now tell us a little bit about how you got into medicine and what led you to specialize in both chronic and acute pain management. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I came into the PA profession in my mid-30s. I've been doing a lot of other things, uh, one of which was supervising a large addiction and detox facility in Denver, Colorado. It was a social detox, co-ed. We had locked doors, no security or medically trained staff. I had no experience in addiction or counseling, but they liked that I had a master's degree, which was actually in physiology. I was very street smart but naive, and I showed up that first day thinking I'd save everyone. My first job as a TA was in community health as a primary care provider in South Seattle, and it's just so obvious, James, how much behavioral medicine and pain take up primary care appointments. So I decided to get really good at both, pain and mental health, When the job that I have now opened up, I never thought it would be such a perfect fit for me. There is so much education to share specifically on opioids for providers and patients. I feel extremely fortunate. And I just want to mention here that addiction is really about loss. People lose something, a loved one, their health. It is a job or a relationship or a dream they were fighting for. And we don't always cope so well with loss. One coping strategy is to numb with substances, right? Alcohol, drugs, substance misuse is very prevalent in our 24-hour society. There's a lot of stress that we as humans tolerate, and I'm not entirely sure that we're biologically designed to do so. I've kind of had that same experience when dealing with patients, especially the chronic pain management and seeing patients on chronic opioid therapy. It's very eye-opening when you actually start to become personally involved in their life and you take on a very different view of what's going on in our healthcare community. It doesn't seem like opioids and, you know, the, there's an obvious link there, right, that is very well studied now between opioids and addiction, but this doesn't seem like it was such a big deal back 30, 40 years ago. How did all this kind of get started? I'll definitely try to keep this short. Uh, the history is really fascinating to me, and I'm going to go back a little bit further than 30, 40 years, you know, with opium. It's been around for at least a thousand years. And morphine arrived in the United States in the early 1800s and was used predominantly on the battlefield. So morphine was amazing, right? It pain control. It also produced feelings of euphoria. And it was just truly a magic drug. I imagine what we know now could be true about the addiction potential of opioids with long-term users developing both tolerance and dependence was less well-known when they began to be prescribed over the last century. But really, overall, in the 1990s, oxycodone was developed, and it was thought to be less addictive than previous opioids, like morphine, and so it was prescribed very liberally. Much of the reason was likely ease 
it works for pain, and it was far easier and took less time for a provider to prescribe oxycodone. And it was definitely easier to prescribe than spend 30 minutes talking to a patient about alternatives. Some people became addicted through little faults of their own because they were following orders and taking what they were prescribed. And then also for other patients, therapies may not have been covered by insurance, but pills were. So they may have been the only choice for some patients for severe pain. Through the years then, as more became known about opioids and the risks of long-term use, and they became more sanctioned by the government, providers changed the way they prescribed them, sometimes reducing prescriptions unethically or very abruptly, sometimes cutting patients off altogether. This led to many patients left in the lurch, now with a real physiological dependence and others with real undertreated pain. Sellers saw a market, and in the last decade, the street value for opioids took off, including heroin, which was easy to find. And today, pills, heroin, synthetically made fentanyl are everywhere. I think the point you made about how little was known about these medications is something we have seen over and over. And even as we moved on to more potent oral medications, we've seen the link between addiction was not fully understood or discussed in the beginning, and now it is much more prevalent. When we're talking about opioids, this may seem a simple question, but what makes them so dangerous, and why is overprescribing a problem? I just want to say, too, when taken as prescribed by a provider who understands pain, opioids can be life-saving, right? But we also know the side effects of opioids can be detrimental and include severe consequences such as respiratory failure and death with overdosing. But there are also less known side effects that are dangerous as well. Patients may experience violent mood swings or personality changes, impaired logic and reasoning, and they may have really debilitating constipation, which can be so severe it leads to bowel obstruction, and they're hospitalized. I've had patients who will literally refuse opioids because they say their constipation is worse than the pain from the injury or surgery itself. And then to answer the second part of your question, why is overprescribing such a problem? It's important to consider that for every opioid prescription written for a patient, that prescription and those pills end up not only in the patient's hands, but also in the hands of the community. It's important to think about this when prescribing. Family members may find them and take them or try them. The pills may be stolen. I've had patients targeted on the street specifically because they are known to have an opioid prescription, which they don't need. They keep getting it refilled anyway. And then sadly, I've also had a patient's young son die after the son found the patient's opioids prescription and thought they were candy. Really sad and preventable. So in the wrong hands, opioids are deadly. And I believe patients, they should be given only what they need in follow-up appointment or follow-up care and then be required to keep prescriptions in a locked area. Those are some great points. We have definitely learned some lessons from how things can go badly when these medications are not taken seriously because of the side effects. Now, the spike in addiction and overdoses, this has obviously led to prescribers reducing the number of opioid prescriptions. Sometimes this is dictated by state law. There are now multiple electronic registries that track opioid prescriptions across entire states. And people are just prescribing less because of a conscious sense of responsibility to limit access and exposure to these medications. As we are doing these things, have there been some unintended consequences? I definitely believe so. I think one of the big things, especially in the last few years I've seen, is, is providers you know, feel like they're doing a disservice to their patients by prescribing opioids, so tapering them too quickly or cutting or just stopping to prescribe them. But that can also be really dangerous because 
the side effects of withdrawal from quick tapering. And it's quite devastating. Of course, when opioids have been a regular part of pain management for a patient, and suddenly that treatment abruptly changes. So abrupt changes without support for the patient, a realistic tapering plan off of opioids, and development of a new plan often has incredibly sad consequences. In desperate, I think any of us, when we're desperate, and desperate patients who have had long-time opioids discontinued or tapered too quickly, they're vulnerable to make bad decisions. They may try to find opioids anywhere to avoid withdrawal. And withdrawal, right, is very real and can also lead to potentially to a fatality due to dehydration from persistent vomiting and diarrhea, high fevers, sometimes for days to weeks. So to avoid that, patients may look for diverted prescriptions, heroin, fentanyl. And fentanyl is an opioid I want to just mention here a little bit more. Uh, it's not often prescribed, uh, like in a primary care setting. It's, it's typically used for cancer, often in a patch that you just put on your skin. But it's also, it's likely to be one of the most important opioids to know, especially for new prescribers, new providers. Fentanyl is synthetically made and extremely potent. The illicit version is made in a way where the true potency cannot be measured. Fentanyl on the street is a powder often added to or cut with other similarly dangerous and addictive drugs like crystal meth or heroin. So a person thinks they're buying heroin, but really it's heroin mixed with fentanyl, which they wouldn't know. This ends up just being too much. They OD and they stop breathing. And this is the scenario that we're seeing play out all over this country, every corner. I definitely feel like I'm a bit of an advocate for good pain management, for adequate pain management. Opioids have a place and a time. I think we'll talk about that in a little bit. But we're also seeing opioid phobia, right? So providers that are afraid to prescribe now and not prescribing opioids for things that could actually be quite painful. And underprescribing opioids is a very stark reality as well. I've seen patients intentionally self-harm or get into questionable accidents in order to get opioids prescribed legally because the withdrawal is so severe. And they were cut off by a previous provider, perhaps, without a proper taper plan or someone that wanted to do, you know, the best for them, but also didn't consider tapering and, you know, developing a new plan in place of what the patient was doing before. You made some great points with that. I think the provider responsibility needs to be accepted when we are writing these medications because as you clearly explained there are so many ways that this can go badly for patients when we decide to suddenly stop or switch or change a plan that hasn't been fully thought through now i'm a surgical pa and we prescribe opiates for post-operative pain after cardiac surgery patients definitely need a very heavy doses of pain medications um, for a number of days and there are other circumstances where it's very appropriate to be giving these medications uh, for short terms at kind of higher dosing. Why do you think that we're having so much trouble reframing this pain conversation with patients and within our healthcare systems? Yeah. I, first, I want to say, say, James, too, that uh, I appreciate you being a surgical PA. Uh, I work with a lot of them and always enjoy and appreciate you know, the teamwork and effort, especially within a hospital setting. So I think that's really cool. <laughs> It, may, it makes my day very fun. There's a lot of collaboration. Um, and yeah. specifically when, we co when it comes to this opioid prescribing, we have an entire enhanced recovery after surgery program that, you know, addresses pain in a multi multimodal fashion and, you know, has designed into it quick tapers from IV to PO to step downs in, you know, dosing and frequency as much as we can. And I think it, it takes a team to do something like that. So I want to answer your question when it's appropriate to prescribe opioids. Opioids are great for pain and for, you know, what they were designed for. So acute pain, this would be things like surgical pain, like you treat, uh, James, fractures, infections, dental procedures, which, are, which is some of the most difficult pain, and childbirth, just for some examples. 
And when taken for a short amount of time, they are for the most part safe. As you kind of mentioned and alluded to, right, all a good prescription should include a tapering schedule and include evidence-based instructions on exactly how to take them and for how long. And then I think as far as reframing the pain conversation, these conversations are difficult. Some of the, the biggest difficulty is there's so much stigma related to opioid use, both by the provider and the patient, and also bias. This is explicit bias and also inherent bias. Many providers almost instinctually may frame those with opioid prescriptions for whatever diagnosis or for whatever reason is problematic or drug-seeking without ever meeting the patient. Now, that's a real, very real bias that patients experience, and that's on the provider to develop an awareness of how we feel towards certain patients with certain diagnoses. And there are tools and language and really effective ways to learn how to have difficult conversations, but it's not something that we learn in school. I also want to add here, because I think people really fail sometimes to consider that many patients do not want to take opioids even after a major surgery. This was really surprising to me this first time this happened. But patients and just society, family members, are so afraid of opioids because of the stigma of appearing as a drug user, because of the way they're treated when they go to the ER, right, or to a primary care provider for the first time. So patients not wanting to take opioids or refusing them in situations where it could increase function actually may result in acute or permanent dysfunction a lot of what I do in the hospital is spend a lot of time educating patients about, you know, how opioids work, how they are safe when used appropriately, and how, you know, we're there to support them in other ways as well, right? Opioids aren't the only treatment for pain. Multimodal, and that's using several different tactics to approach pain, things like ibuprofen, you know, physical therapy. I agree. I think the conversations we're having with the patients and helping them understand what they're taking, why they're taking it, how they should be taking it, what to expect. I think that is can be very eye-opening for the patient and help them really understand and take hold of their own health care. It allows them to become part of the process instead of saying, here's what you take. It's more of a, here's what we're going to give you. These are things that can happen with it. And if any of this starts to happen, you let me know because we will change things. I think that feedback that you get from in the hospital are fortunate because you have daily rounding and you can have those discussions. In the outpatient setting, that can be a little bit more difficult. We've mentioned there are obviously appropriate uses for opioids and even chronic opioids. Can you describe to us a little bit of what those settings are like and how, how that's done? You know, appropriate uses are going to be uh, acute pain. So I kind of mentioned surgical, you know, even some infections, fractures for sure. And a lot of the reason that we use opioids is to allow a patient to heal without doing further damage, uh, and also to help them function so that they can participate, you know, in physical therapy. We know, of course, opioids are very uh, frequently used in cancer-type pain, palliative care treatment. I dabble in both of those fields within the hospital where I work now. And sometimes also opioids can facilitate people being able to sleep. I sometimes have had patients where they're the sole breadwinner and they have to go to work and they can't take time off. So sometimes... It's just being, you know, judicious. And I think also with prescribing opioids is being able to document and support why you are prescribing them. Uh, the documentation is extremely important. So for whatever reason you prescribe opioids, documenting that so that you can without a doubt say this is why I think this would be helpful. I agree. I think that documentation piece is so important to both for the medical legal side, obviously, but also for other providers, because we look into the notes and we see each other's notes and what people are writing and why. 
And having that background and that data in the chart is so important for the future care of that patient. Absolutely agree. The other thing I wanted to mention too, right? So opioids can be extremely beneficial for acute conditions and absolutely should always include a tapering plan. The best tapering plan will reduce the dose of opioids, right, over time as function improves. If function is not improving for the patient, that doesn't mean to add more opioid. And I think that's really what's happened for many years is just keep on increasing pain medication. But function isn't improving at all. And if function isn't improving, you really want to start to investigate more and you really you have an accurate diagnosis, right? You really know what you're treating. Or are we just putting patients at risk? And I think that prescribing opioids is easy. It's a lot easier to spend five minutes writing uh, for hydrocodone, you know, spending 30 minutes talking about alternatives, but it's the vow we take, you know, putting patients first and their safety. So I'm pro-opioid for, you know, things that I think it would be really beneficial for and that there's evidence to support. I agree. I think we need to be very mindful of how we're writing these medications and use them. They're, they're useful. They, they are very useful in certain settings, but when done appropriately. For the chronic pain management, I want to bring up one that I know I have had a difficult time with, and I feel like every provider has ran into this, and they go, what do we do here? So chronic back pain, chronic low back mm-hmm. pain, seems to be one of the banes of opioid management. It is difficult. In your experience, how do you think providers should approach treatment for this? I, I somehow knew that you were going to say back pain, and really, I'll answer this uh, to, to the best of my ability in our time now, but, you know, this is really a, a whole seminar in itself. You know, I think the really interesting thing about chronic low back pain is it's one of the top two reasons that people seek out a primary care provider in the first place worldwide. So it's pervasive, it's everywhere, they pull the back muscle or strain it, but it's a, a main reason that people show up to a doctor or a PA or nurse practitioner. The number one reason, interestingly, is depression. This is all according to the World Health Organization. So back pain, we know, can be from many things. So the first thing that a provider needs is a diagnosis. We are trained to do this. What is causing the pain? What was the mechanism of injury? What has helped? What is not as far as providing relief? And having an accurate diagnosis is the first step in treating pain of any kind because then you understand the pathophysiology of what helps and what heals. I have to tell you, with my job now, I have been trained by some of the you know, top people in the field doing pain management. And this was so important. It seemed critical for me to hear this is that there's, you know, the best way to treat pain is to know know the diagnosis. And it just changed the way I see things. And let me, I'll kind of speak to that a little bit more. You know, for most back pain, the diagnosis is a muscle strain or sprain from lifting, moving around quickly, you know, maybe starting a new exercise, being a bit out of shape. Most of us have experienced, you know, pulling a back muscle. This type of pain typically resolves in a few weeks. So if a strain or a sprain is suspected, the best treatment for that is taking it easy, using over-the-counter anti-inflammatories like acetaminophen or ibuprofen, and also adjuncts like physical therapy, appropriate gentle exercises, ice and heat. And also the biggest thing with back pain, I think that people often don't want to hear is that It just takes time for your body to heal. So a lot of reassurance for patients. And then also you're really paying attention to if the pain gets worse or it's not improving, right? Function isn't improving. Then we want to investigate, is there something else going on? When possible for back pain, especially if it's suspected, you know, strain of some kind, uh, don't use opioids as a first treatment option unless your differential is more severe and you're thinking that it's something else. 
But even then, you're going to get imaging to best establish the diagnosis, possibly write a short-term opioid prescription, uh, depending on the situation, until this imaging can be completed so you have a more clear picture of what you're treating. And I kind of think once you understand a bit of how to approach, you know, especially back pain, I think if you can get good at back pain because it's so pervasive and you'll see so many different people in in any practice, pretty much, it's really valuable to understand, for one, that it's really common and also most commonly it's usually not a devastating thing that's happened uh, maybe overuse injury but then again right back pain we could talk for the entire time that we have a tape recording which i think is 35 hours <laughs> <laughs> i agree i agree the back pain uh conversation is long but you made a good point i think if you are able to effectively manage the chronic low back pain in you know in any setting that gives you experience in a window of how do you manage something that can be difficult, can last, you know, more than a couple days, but involves a multifaceted approach. It's not just opioids because that's a band-aid. It's not going to fix the actual problem. Now, when we talk about pain, pain varies. It's subjective, right? It differs from patient to patient. And there is often a very strong emotional component to pain. There are psychological components to pain. And the effective treatment, I believe, relies heavily on an effective communication, right, between the patient and the provider. So tell us, how do you think the that relationship plays a role in pain management and what have you seen in preventing opioid misuse? I want to take a moment here and ask, I'll ask you actually, James. Uh, so the average amount, what do you think the average amount of time a provider allows any patient to speak? before interrupting them? How much time do you think passes on average? That is a great question. I would say it's slightly dependent on who we're rounding with. But <laughs> yeah. uh, no, I, I don't have a good answer for you. There was a study done in the in JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association. The average amount of time a provider allows a patient, any patient to speak before interrupting them with their own agenda is 12 seconds. There's no way we hear everything that we need to in 12 seconds. And I think this this is a burnout factor in healthcare where we feel there's really no time to listen. Or is there? Because I think that there are creative ways to listen. And I'm going to say this, that just one visit of focused attention in listening to a patient share their pain story. When did the pain start? Where? How does it limit the patient's quality of life, their goals? Spending this time, this kind of focused time with a patient, even once, is the surest way to build rapport, in my experience. Many patients with a pain history, they don't feel heard. This is really common. It's something I hear often, so I listen. They feel judged and labeled and put in a hole. They may have maladaptive behaviors that make them difficult to work with, but that's just like any patient. And I think listening can never be discounted. It's the best way to engage with any human. And that is to say pain management should absolutely be collaborative between the patient and the provider with shared decision-making and clearly defined goals. Providers should be setting realistic expectations of the healing process, be upfront about opioid prescribing and tapering, and collaborate with the, pe- with the patient on a pain contract, hold them accountable, watch for signs of misuse, and also recognize personally if you just need more support or need to know more to be able to treat a specific patient, right? I mean, we're PAs, we're trained to be part of a team, and I've, I've always been really proactive about seeking out you know, information from people much smarter than I. <laughs> There's not many. But when I find them, I ask them questions. <laughs> the other thing, working in pain management requires a lot of patience. I think for anyone you know, listening who's already practicing or a student, if you have extra compassion or empathy or, or, or kindness, 
people with chronic pain uh, and also addiction can really use that. There's never going to be a shortage of patients who need that kind of care and may not get it very often because of their history. I think the point you made about empathy is very poignant with with this conversation because I think we've all seen there are some providers who are better than others at dealing with these type of issues, and this can be challenging for all of us. Uh, Although we all have experience with pain, and most of us have connections to people who have had who have dealt with addiction as well. Now, what else do you think uh, PAs and other providers? can do to become better prescribers and better advocates for our patients? What we're doing right now, I think, is exciting because this is another opportunity to share information and, you know, gathering and, and learning more information is definitely a one. The first thing is to just educate ourselves. So educating ourselves about opioids. You know, before I worked specifically in pain management, I didn't. I realized I really didn't know that much until I was working in a field with, you know, experts around me. But educating ourselves for the proper use of opioids within the clinical setting that we're in, educating our patients about opioids and their families or loved ones, educating our colleagues. And then, you know, we can learn multimodal strategies for pain management, as we've talked about a little bit. Uh, not every treatment for pain is an opioid. It's important as providers to learn to recognize warning signs of opioid misuse and opioid use disorder. We can be proactive in learning to recognize our own internal bias, you know, the little or big voice that makes up our minds about someone even before we meet them. And there are ways to do this. We can consciously seek to have empathy for patients, you know, listen, to try and always listen without judgment to their personal circumstances along with their physical circumstances. And it's also really important, and this also, I think, helps with connection to the community and meeting other advocates that can help uh, with patients and help support patients. But making sure that, you know, local resources, including behavioral health, uh, addiction support, you know, detox facilities, inpatient stays as necessary in our communities to help patients, whether at wherever they're at. And I think, you know, self-care, it's not, it's not just these buzzwords. Uh, it's critical, absolutely critical for healthcare providers to take care of ourselves, recognize when we need a break, which for many people is, is just hard to do. It's important, I think, to be able to take a well-timed vacation. I personally, one of my my favorite uh, ways of doing self-care is to spend a lot of time with people who make me laugh. And you've made me laugh a little bit, James, so thank you. <laughs> no, I think that's a good point, though. Self-care and you know, paying attention to how we feel about things when we're working with our patients is important to optimize their outcomes. Now, regarding education, you recently worked with the PA Foundation on a program to help prepare PA students to be safe opioid prescribers in their future practices. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I was invited to participate in the development of this symposium education program, and the aim, provide education on safe opioid prescribing, empowering students with knowledge they maybe had never heard before. And I think the focus right on pre-prescribers, so students, whether PA students, nurse practitioner, medical students, dental students, pharmacy, our goal is to reach students before they graduate, offer evidence-based approaches to opioid prescribing now while they're in training, and then we'll give them a leg up in their clinical training where they will experience many of the things that we're discussing here. The experience with participating in this project and presenting has been just phenomenal. The students and faculty at the universities we presented at have been very engaged vocally appreciative. And I can um, see this amazing value as I didn't have this kind of opportunity, that kind of opportunity when I was a student. I learned most of what I know about pain management by reading, learning, uh, seeking out others more experienced than me for advice. And as we did the project and um, were presenting, it was, it was interesting to see a lot of the similar concerns that students have. 
really common questions, you know, how to prescribe, when to prescribe opioids, when to taper, how to have a difficult conversation with a patient. A common question was, where to start, right? Which is just the first question, like, I don't know what to do, where do I start? Some of the students were asked, would ask, how do I learn to compassionately say no? Compassionately, which makes me really proud of them. Students appreciate the gravity of the material and the reality that nearly every one of us was affected by opioids in some way. We maybe have a friend or a loved one that has overdosed or has been involved with opioids or experienced addiction. Many of us know someone who has severe chronic pain. And I think that they scare us. I think that, that personal experience scares us because we want to help, but we don't know how. So a good remedy for helplessness, right, is hope of any kind. And a good way to get that is information. So if students know a little bit more about safe opioid prescribing, after our presentation, that knowledge will take away some of the personal fear that they might have, especially as a new provider working in medicine. I definitely agree. And I think it is great that we had your expertise and your involvement in that initiative. Now, Laura, I want to thank you so much for joining us today for this discussion. This is something that is near and dear to many of us in healthcare and is something we are all going to come across in our daily activities at work. I wish we could talk more. Absolutely. I really love to teach. So I appreciate having this platform and and your time and, and thoughtful questions and responses. So thank you so much. Now, this episode of Vital Minds is supported by the Amerisource Bergen Foundation's Opioid Resource Grant Program and is one element of a larger set of resources you can find on the PA Foundation's website. Visit pa-foundation.org forward slash safe prescribing to see the full suite of resources. Thank you for joining us, everybody. I'm James Millward, and this is Vital Minds.